For quite a few years now, um, I give the talk on Wednesday evening just prior to Thanksgiving. Um, it's something I want to do and something that many people don't want to do. They're either heading away somewhere else to be with visiting, being with families and so forth. Um, but for me, it's uh, I enjoy doing it. and. Um, it's not just giving a talk, it's just, uh, it's a way of uh, reflection because uh, every time I do it, I have to reflect on gratitude, giving thanks. Uh, before I go on, this something would help me a lot. How many people are here for the very first time? Show of hands, please. Okay. Uh, of those of you who are here for the very first time, are you totally new to Buddhist meditation of any form? Show of hands. Okay, if I say the word Dharma, that if you don't know exactly what it means, it's sort of a battle cry. I mean, it's something you hear. You know it's good, right? Okay. Uh, for myself, uh, it's the only American holiday that really matters to me. Uh, that I'm not just doing it because it's a day off and an opportunity to get together with friends and family. Uh, growing up in a, a Russian Jewish immigrant community, uh, Christmas didn't mean much. Uh, it just meant Bing Crosby singing a few songs, some reindeer, and you know maybe uh, some, I don't know, rotund gentleman in a red outfit uh, with a child on his knee. But it didn't mean very much. It was just totally... Uh, didn't have much relevance for, for the life that was going on. But somehow Thanksgiving did, uh, for any number of reasons. I think at first it would just be what I was educated into. The, you know, the, Our ancestors, the Puritans, came over and took th gratitude and so forth. Uh, sort of what officially this American holiday is for. But it soon became uh, much more than that when I realized... Um, that it was about giving thanks. And uh, I could relate to that. And as the years went on, I could relate to it more and more. I would say I can relate to it most of all now. I think perhaps as you get older, uh, it is more meaningful. What is it to you that you're grateful for? Even if there is a lot of things that are off in your life. Maybe there's been some disappointment or loss or disappointment in yourself, or in other, other people. Or, there are all kinds of ways uh, to uh, be hurt, to get hurt. Yet, uh, if you look at your life, I have a hunch you can find something to be grateful for. There's an exchange between the Buddha and somebody who is extremely demoralized, uh, didn't have any energy to do any of the practices, came to the Buddha, sort of, I'm hopeless, it's hopeless, uh, I just want to tell you that, Buddha. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And what the Buddha did is uh, a very simple, uh, engage in a very simple kind of uh, exchange. Uh, he said, uh, can you hear what I'm saying? And the person said, sure, of course I can. He said, do you know how many people cannot hear? And he said, oh, it's interesting. Can you see me? Oh, of course I can see you. He said, do you know how many people are blind? and so forth. 
It's sort of, uh, at very least, just take the bare essentials of being alive. Now, I understand that sometimes we're so down that that could be negative. Like, how do I get out of this? When, when is this going to come to an end? But I would say that, in general, uh, we can find some basis for gratitude. Um, what I'd like to do tonight, I, it's not like I have a script or anything. Uh, it's not the, if we all did this together, we could be here, I think, for days, weeks. Personal, that is, uh, uh, when growing up, our families, friends, significant people who helped us, mentors, it's just endless situations, uh, the condition that we uh, somehow got born into. Um, I'm going to skip that. Of course, that's a central part of gratitude. And so this being a, a, an insight meditative Vipassana meditation center, uh, and this is part of a series of talks that I've been giving, it seems like, forever, uh, called, what is it called? <laughs> <laughs> something about self-knowing and a quiet passion. Yeah, one of, you know, something like that. Um, and that is my passion, self-knowing. And so what I thought I'd uh, like to do is uh, reflect what I've been doing every year is sort of taking a different chunk of Dharma. If you were here last year and I'm repeating myself, uh, I apologize, but I don't know what I said last year. I'm not listening to the tape. I'm not trying to be original. Uh, in fact, the content isn't so relevant. The reason I wanted to know uh, about how many of you... Uh, some of you are probably very new to Buddhism. Um, I'm grateful to a lot of what's happened to me within that framework that happened to me in midlife, let's say. Um, I don't expect that all of you could possibly have that same gratitude unless you sincerely do. That means you would have had to have practiced a bit and genuinely seen some ways in which this practice, the teachings, and then putting the teachings into practice, uh, has really helped you with your life, so that you're grateful. Whether it's personified through some teacher or the Buddha or whatever it is. So if you're very, very new and you can't, you, you don't say, well, you, don't, you have nothing to match what I'm saying, don't worry about that. Uh, just be honest. Moreover, there's so many other things you can be grateful for tomorrow, but you can start right now. And I'm not saying that you're supposed to be grateful in the ways that I am, because my life unfolded in its own unique way. Everyone's path is completely different. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it is true. Uh, that's why one size doesn't fit all in terms of teachings. There's no one teaching that is for everyone, because there is no such thing as everyone in this sense. So that uh, you, if you are moving in this direction, some of you have been practicing for a while, you may be able to find some counterpart in your own life that uh, we pause and, uh, and reflect on. <clears throat> the reason I say that this gets me to reflect all the time is that <clears throat> if you're doing it every day, as I have been for 30 years or more, I don't know, in that range, uh, at a certain point, it's a way of life. And... Uh, I don't go around all day long teary-eyed you know, uh, with gratitude because uh, this is how I live. And then every now and then I stop and I realize, wait a minute, where did I learn this from? 
uh, who helped me learn it? How did I used to be before I started doing this stuff? Uh, and so that's part of why this day is valuable for me. I, I've spent a few hours before here, not preparing a talk, but just going over what a jerk I was, you know. Uh, I'm happy that, so, that somehow or another, by accident, by, as we say, by hook or by crook, I got into this path because I had spent many, many years of my life uh, searching to find, for example, I thought it had to do with work, getting the right job. I grew up with people who uh, came from Europe, uh, <clears throat> many of them, like my father, arrived too late to go to school, arrived at 14, 15, had to support the families right away. And so um, they had jobs often for their entire life that they worked very hard at, but that they either disliked or tolerated or hated. And I grew up in the midst of that. And I had a very, very strong determination. I don't want this to happen to me. So I wound up being very confused because I didn't find what I wanted to do. I, was in, I, I allowed myself to get drafted. Very few people in the Dharma scene have gotten drafted. In, this was right after World War II. Uh, most, it, it, there's a club that we formed. If you know Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn, uh, there are a few of the Ajahns and others. We formed a little club because there's so few of us. Dharma people who somehow or another wound up in the Army, Navy, Air Corps, uh, Marines. Uh, everyone else found some way to duck out of that one. Okay, I could have ducked out of it, and I didn't, not because I'm some great patriot, it's because it was a relief. I didn't know what to do after college. So please draft me, you know, uh, so, I, so I don't have to give me another, another few years to make up my mind, because I don't know what to do next. Uh, my father had me all set to be a printer, and he had gotten, uh, uh, I don't know, he's gotten me into the printer's union, which was something wonderful. And, this was before he even envisioned the possibility that his son could go to college. It just didn't occur to him. So I'm coming from that kind of background. Uh, so then when I got out, I spent uh, some futile years in law. Nothing wrong with law, some, but it was, it's wrong if it's not for you, and it really was not for me. Uh, if there was kind of judge school, that might have been good for me. But, <laughs> but I think you have to go through other things to get to be, you know, I would enjoy the outfit, I think, and, you know, <laughs> uh, sounding wise and deciding for people. Maybe not so much that part. Um, and then from that, uh, went into an academic, academic life, got a PhD, taught for 10 years at uh, excellent universities, and uh, had a, a wonderful resume. It's important you remember that. My resume was terrific. <laughs> what was wrong was the person whose resume it belonged to. <laughs> okay. Uh, to back up a little bit, to make some sense out of this, and remember, this is about you, really. Your life is, is not going to be identical, but uh, maybe there's something going on in your life that this uh, resonates with. Uh, in my household, growing up, um, learning was emphasized. It was a house full of books. But what learning meant was books, and then it meant school. That's what learned, that's what, and it was very, very highly valued. And so if you were a decent student and you wanted to do more of that, uh, your family would do anything to help you do that. 
and my father used the word wisdom a lot and also questioned a lot, especially Orthodox Judaism, which he had utter contempt for. <laughs> he was uh, uh, from a long line of rabbis who became a Marxist, you know, and went from one religion to another, you know. Uh, and so, but what he called wisdom uh, useful, these were stories that he read to me as a child, and then we talk about it to see if I understood it. Uh, if, you know, the uh, Aesop's fables, uh, in Russian, with he, it was Krilov. Uh, it was he read from in Russian, but in English for me. And these were little stories about, like typically animals, and had just very wonderful uh, practical wisdom. Like I don't know, a uh, a bird and a crab and a fox trying to pull a wagon, and you know the, the bird wants to go up and the crab wants to go down, and the fox wants to. And they, and of course, there's no unity there. So the lesson was. <laughs> If you want something to happen, you have to all pull together. Uh, and it was lessons like that. So wisdom was a very important word. And it felt when I heard wisdom, I would, that's good. Uh, when I got to college, um, my favorite, one of my favorite courses was on Greek philosophy. And I especially loved Socrates. And I'm saying all this not as some kind of exercise in narcissism or, you know, that my biography is so fascinating for you all. It's that. I, I'm trying to make a connection because I was doing it for myself, although a lot of this has been obvious to me for a long time, as to uh, what is it that I'm grateful for that I've been doing for all these years and that I've received an enormous amount of help. Couldn't have done it by myself. From people called teachers, from friends, fellow practitioners of, of meditation, etc. Could not have done it by myself, no question about that. Um, so Socrates had questions that I loved, uh, know thyself, uh, an unexamined life is not a life worth living, it's pretty heavy duty. I'm sure you're all examining your life, it's now a psychotherapeutic uh, world and everyone is examining their life in some way, at least around here. Um, How is one to live, was the big question for Socrates. How is one to live? Translated for you, for me, how am I to live? And that to me is an ongoing refinement. It's something that in a way doesn't get solved forever, ever. Although certainly there can be clarifications and choices that give you some very strong, clear and appropriate and even wise direction. But then even on a daily basis, uh, wisdom is not something fixed. It's not static. It's something that is uh, that emerges in situations, and for it to be true wisdom, it has to be alive. It's not Socrates said, the Buddha said, uh, Lao Tzu said, Jesus said. That's good at cocktail parties, perhaps, and it's uh, and some of it's interesting, especially if you take it to heart. But alive means you're living. The wisdom has to be lived. It becomes you. And so up until this point, I had not encountered uh, Buddhism at all. So it was just a value that I had. And when I had free time, I would read that. My degree was in social psychology. And to get now to kind of speed up the process so we can get to what we do here, and not just here, in endless meditation centers now, they're springing up all over, and which have existed for thousands of years. 
long before the Buddha. People have been interested in this stuff. Um, having a wonderful resume and then in the midst of having that wonderful resume, experiencing an inner paucity, an inner lack, uh, an inner a lack of uh, inner riches, and being, re being received very much by, the, by others in terms of my resume, favorably, very positively. And that can take you just so far. It feels good when people find out you have a nice resume and they add onto you. They project all kinds of wonderful things onto you. Much of it not really appropriate or deserved, but it makes them happy. Okay. Uh, and you can, at least from me, I could play that game just so long. So in a sense, at the height of my resume, was, uh, that's where I crashed. So I came into this from the top into this. Uh, it can come from any direction. You could be just miserable, tormented, and seek something to help you. This was too, it was tremendous suffering, but it came from uh, the inadequacy of outer success. This is not to badmouth universities, or education, or law, honestly, honestly and truly. What it is is to just help you understand one person's struggle uh, to try to find something and why uh, something called the Buddha's teaching has answered that for me. I don't assume that it will do it for you. I honestly don't know. I'm not a missionary. This is not uh, uh, trying to sell some product. Uh, what good would that be? You have to really want this stuff. The last thing we want here are people who are trying to meditate and hate being here and uh, think it's all a hoax or whatever it is and, and expect us to do artificial respiration every day. You know, We do a little bit of that anyway because people are, sometimes we're all down and we need help, but I don't mean that. So <clears throat> it's limited. What I'm saying is just about one individual. I think there's more to it than just me or I wouldn't be saying this. Um, <clears throat> so the low point in my life at that point was outwardly a high point, inwardly a desert. And it got me to question, and since my degree was in social psychology, a PhD in social psychology at a, from a good university, I had a lot of training in anthropology, uh, and I did a lot of research that style, field methods. And it was great. I knew a, a lot. But I knew a lot about other people's minds. I knew more about the Samoans and the Coatl Indians than I did about uh, my own little bird brain mind. I just, because I, and not only that, even about people in my own culture, uh, I knew about the mind, the brilliant structural scientific statements about the mind. Um, but it, somehow or another, it helped me minimize contact with my own mind. And by mind here, I mean heart as well. I mean the whole being. Nothing left out. How you live, your feelings, your perceptions, your actions especially, etc. And I looked around and I felt that outer success didn't seem to be doing as much as I had hoped it would for me or for other people. And so there was a kind of despair because now what? I had worked so hard uh, tremendously uh, ambitious, worked so hard to get an advanced degree and then gotten it and published and 
Uh, at the end, after a while, the phrase used to be publish or perish in the university. When I, at the, when I started to see this, I would say, should read publish and perish. <laughs> but that's just for me. Okay. Uh, but it's perish at a different level. And so one of the things I started to see, which is diagnostic, not only of me, but of our whole, the problem the planet's in right now. To me, this is not metaphysical or um, cut off from our daily life. What I see now is the human race, is, it seems, has always been very foolish. There's always been cruelty, stupidity, foolishness. Um, if you read history, it's not that we're any worse than anyone else. If you read it, you can just see it's amazing what human beings did to each other in ancient times. There are cruelties that are even unspeakable now. Uh, so, but the weapons that people had were like bow and arrows and swords. So how much, you know, you can still do a lot of damage with it. Cruelty can do a lot of damage. Now, and wisdom was of more interest among the ancients. They valued it much more, not in every culture, but certainly in a fair number of cultures, the ones we know best probably. Wisdom, but it was also, uh, you do it. It would be a small circle of people who become monks or nuns or eccentrics or ascetics. You go off in the mountains, leave us alone because we, wanted, we just want to get rich, famous, and do each other in. You guys go and you, know, you do all that stuff and then tell us about it and then we'll be, we'll be really inspired and that'll give us more energy to then go and do people in you know, a little bit more. Okay. Once in a while, somebody will drop their stuff and say, hey, I want to go off with you, with all of you people. What am I doing here? Okay, so it was a, a certain view of wisdom. The wisdom somehow was cut off from daily life, and special people did it. Okay, the difference now is uh, the brilliance, uh, extraordinary brilliance of science and technology. It is beyond what was science fiction when I was growing up. It is way beyond it, and it's just beginning. Okay, so now we have, and some of it's wonderful, but unfortunately somehow we humans, right now it's almost any new scientific breakthrough, we have to turn it into some kind of weaponry or some kind of defense. And the whole process of, of unbridled industrialization, you know all this. I'm just trying to, to uh, connect two dots. One, that this keeps strengthening itself and growing and becoming more potent. And wisdom isn't. Wisdom just creeps along. So you've got little tiny people with not much wisdom with fantastic tools of destruction. Fantastic. Extraordinary. And there's still a feverish arms race. And we have all kinds of conferences and legislation. But we know that there's a lot still going on in, in all these, including here, of course. So, but isn't that the same as individuals? That's what I had done. I had spent so much time and energy and dedication to external mastery of some kind. There's nothing wrong with that. Moreover, it's necessary. I'm not putting that down. The world uh, has benefited from so much of science and technology. If it could only end there, but it doesn't seem to. So in my own case, a tiny example of someone who had done so well externally to the neglect of uh, inner life 
in other religions we call my soul. There's really no soul in Buddhism, sorry. People use it sometimes, I think it's kind of user-friendly, or if you come from a Judeo-Christian, Catholic, you know, like say, well, you get meditation will take you to really touch your soul, then people feel more comfortable, I think I want this. Um, there is a soul, too, in Buddhism, but it's, um, when you look closely, uh, it's something that is um, impermanent, like everything, all other forms. Okay, so this got me to search, and one thing led to another, and I don't want to go into all of that, but um, the key point for me that I'd like to make now, let's see, uh, I have to, when does my talk end? <laughs> Never in a way, but. Oh, look what it says here. Dharma talk, the length of the talk is up to you. <laughs> You're in big trouble. <laughs> okay. Oh, but it says Q&A begins. That's a little bit, yeah, we ought to make up our mind. The length of the talk is up to you, but I think what they mean, it can be less than 8.30. I'm just getting warmed up. Okay. Uh, so it was the low point of my life. In other words, the external high point was the inner low point, honestly and truly. And so I turned to all kinds of things, experimented with everything, including certain substances, of course. Saw the limitation, benefited from some of that. Don't take this as an endorsement of it, <laughs> because overall it's been a, a nightmare. The chemical comforters, it's, the whole culture is obsessed with chemical comforters of one kind or another. But it did show me something about how vast the human mind is and that all of my knowledge from years of study was just about one portion of it. And there wasn't even a glimpse of understanding that the mind is so much more rich and vast and what lies in each person's heart. The mind is not up there. At any rate, to skip all the different steps, and some of them were very, very painful. Some of them were with, with the dishonest swamis who I got delicious, delicious, got disillusioned by because I was, we, many of us at that time, this was quite a while ago, we were so hungry for spiritual teachings. Almost anything that came from India, we were totally uncritical. Uh, there was no criticism. We were uncritical. And there were some wonderful things that came from India, uh, one of my main teachers, Krishnamurti and Vimala Thakkar, uh, they're with me to this day. But I also got taken by a few swamis. I have to, you know, we're just completely uh, into, into the ladies and money, uh, which they, uh, they got quite a bit of and, until they crashed, because they always crash. Here, anyway. Um, so one thing led to another. And then uh, the key point I'd like to make, because it, for me, uh, has changed my life. If you recall, what I mentioned was uh, the value of learning was natural. I came from a household where that was true. Sure, but learning was limited study, learning. That was limited to book learning, to official classes in a school somewhere. Certainly there was talk about learning from the hard knock, this school of the hard knocks of life and people who didn't go to college would sometimes get defensive and I went to the university of the hard knocks of life, you know, like, okay, okay. Uh, what I saw with the help, actually, the person who really turned me around was uh, an Indian gentleman named Krishnamurti. 
because what I saw was I had such a limited view of what learning was. And what he, uh, I, I met him in quotes by accident, he came to a university, Brandeis University. And a friend of mine, I didn't even want to come, kept saying, this is what you've been looking for for all these years. I don't know what, I heard him in New York City, this is my friend speaking, I heard him in New York City. I don't understand a thing he said, but I, but I know it's for you. <laughs> I said, oh, I've had enough, I've had enough. He said, no, no, this guy is right up your, this is where you've been, you've been struggling with and this and that. So I went, and he was right. Uh, so I spent, no one seemed to know who he was in addition to me, and so hardly any people attended what he did on campus. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him. But I learned so much from him. Still, he's been dead for quite a while, but not inside. Uh, one of the things he was trying to say is that learning is a lifetime endeavor. It doesn't end with school. And so uh, what started to happen was I started to realize uh, that learning, which was fine with me, uh, for me ended at books and schools and courses and workshops, very intellectual. And what he was saying was, and it wasn't just a cliche because he really gave it depth, what he was saying was, uh, life is teaching lessons all day long, uh, but there's no one signing up for the, the curriculum's all set. And depending on how you look at it, the tuition is either free or it costs you your whole life. But, uh, and so he really meant it. And so over and over, uh, essentially, when I said goodbye to him after those seven days, I wanted some fancy meditation technique. And all, he left me with a few things that were helpful, but mainly he said, Take a look at how you actually live. And so I thought, do you mean like the fact that I just throw my underwear, I was living alone, throw my underwear up in the air and, you know, use the refrigerator for books, you know, to show, <laughs> to show how far out I was. And, you know, this is at the University of Chicago. That, the competition there was who could be more eccentric. <laughs> and, of course, well-read and sharp. Okay. Uh, and he said, okay, you can start there. He said, but no, it's not just about rearranging the physical stuff in your apartment. Sure, that counts too. But what he's saying is, uh, how do you actually live? And, he, and it's quite vivid. This is many years later. Uh, not how your mommy told you how to live or your daddy. Not how you think you should live. How do you actually live from moment to moment? And the only way you're going to find out is start paying attention. See if you can see that as what your, your, in a sense, your course. That's your homework. What you're trying to learn is, hmm, how do I live? How do I actually live? And he emphasized actually, it was deafening. Actually live. I'll pass it on to you. Okay, uh, when I got to Buddhism, there were four, here was a formulation. Um, of course, all of Socrates was now pouring back and I saw that ways of breathing life into what Socrates was saying. There didn't seem to be any methodology uh, in the Greek teachings. It's sort of you just love the words and, and argue with each other about what Socrates meant, but I didn't feel it went anywhere, from, at least for myself and my friends. Uh, there's a, a Japanese master named Dogen, and he said to study the Buddha's Dharma, or to study Buddha Dharma, in other words, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, is to study yourself. The self, okay. To study the self 
it's sometimes translated as to learn. So let's say to study and learn about the self. To study the Buddha, Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, the first step is quite familiar. It's the territory, the substance of stuff that's covered in psychotherapy and just ordinary, sensitive, intelligent people's living. Um, how do I live? How do I, as you begin to see the motives for why you do things, how you speak, uh, how you act, you start learning about, uh, in an unsentimental way, you start seeing unskillful ways of living where you cause harm to yourself and, and perhaps to others as well. And you start seeing the possibility of replacing that, letting, uh, letting that fall away, not enrich it, not reinforce it, so it can be replaced with skillful. In the Buddha's teaching, skillful means that which is beneficial uh, for you and for others. Unskillful is that which is harmful for you or others. In other words, what contributes to suffering or fulfillment? What contributes to harm and does not, it, has, it is not beneficial. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, many human beings, and certainly uh, I've seen that as part of my life, um, we can see where we're not living well, and yet, and yet we continue to do it again and again and again and again, as if somehow it will change by the force of time. Maybe some of it will, as you get too old to do any mischief, in at least in certain realms. But... Uh, so what, what is being said here, one way of putting it, for me this makes total sense, you cannot understand, those of you who are really very new, and for those of you who have been around too, you cannot really understand what the Buddha is talking about, what these teachings are about, without understanding your own mind, heart. You can read the entire library here, and the Harvard Buddhist section, and go to wherever you want. Those are useful. And some of them are brilliant and accurate and helpful. They're pointers. They're like a wonderful menu. But you don't get free from that. So what you have to read is the book of you. And we've not had much encouragement to do that. As I say, I've been given tremendous encouragement to read everyone else's book, but not my own book. Now, can this degenerate into narcissism, self-preoccupation? Of course it can. But that isn't what our practice is. So the practice begins, at least Vipassana practice, in the Buddha's original teachings. It begins where you are and who you are right now. The materials you practice with are exactly the stuff of your life as it is right here, right now. Right here, as you're sitting here. We don't import things from uh, very little of that, if any. You don't have to. Uh, the materials that make up your ordinary life couldn't be better for you to practice with. And what I saw about the, the, the kinds of learning I had to undergo, uh, there, I'll just, in the time we have left, at least I want to touch upon at least two. One is, I feel that what the Buddha is, is saying is a, a radical change in the way we relate to the same things that every human being has to relate to. If you just stop anyone randomly on Broadway who never even heard of meditation, uh, everyone has feelings. Everyone loves and hates and gets sick and gets old. And, uh, so we're all going through the same thing. The content will, will vary. Some of it will be more coarse, more refined. Uh, but it's, we're all human. 
That's why if you go around the planet, uh, if a mother loses a child, it doesn't matter what the culture is, it seems like that's the nature of mother childhood. The mother suffers tremendously, etc. So we're, we're all inescapably in the same boat. Okay. Um, help me out here. Sometimes I get so in the moment that... <laughs> Yes. I don't know what the other thing was. Got it. <laughs> I don't know what the first thing is. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Um, so to me, uh, the, the contribution of, of the Buddha is giving us a different approach to the same old materials of being a human being that's been going on for as long as you want uh, we go. It's a different relationship to what's happening to you. For example, the very biggest, as far as I can tell, is a very different relationship to suffering. The Four Noble Truths, which all Buddhist schools agree upon, the first noble truth is there is suffering in human life. If you probably have all heard that. Um, sometimes people say, that means life sucks, and the Buddhists are very you know, depressed, and it's all very pessimistic. It's not pessimistic, nor is it optimistic. I would say it's realistic. Because what it's saying is, there's a lot of suffering in life. And it also, the, the, this first noble truth, the suffering, why is it referred to as the gateway to liberation? In other words, the very suffering is the place where the suffering ends. Where it exists is where it ends. Now that's, what for me, was a radically different way of relating to what was happening to me. I think my, I not think, I know, I was expert at avoiding directly looking, not analyzing, thinking about, worrying about, uh, suffering, get, get drowning in, uh, denying, escaping from, escaping from, I got lots. Uh, but this was saying, look at it. You know, it has to be intimate. Let it, it's not detachment, by the way, for those of you who are very new. It's uh, intimate. It's allowing it in and fully experiencing it as it is without grasping at it or pushing it away. Stuff happens to us that we love. If you grasp onto it, in a changing world, you will suffer. It's just a law. And if you start, it, it's really the same thing. When we push away what we don't like, we fight with it. Uh, th those are not the practice. The practice is uh, somehow uh, equanimous awareness. It's a life of awareness, and I would add learning. So the key for me was learning how to pay attention. I love to watch, I love films up to, until that point. I think I was a pretty decent observer of humans. That's why I loved anthropological field work. I've been a people watcher for a long time. But now this is saying, you gotta watch a different people too. This people. You gotta start looking in here instead of always looking out there. We do walking meditation here sometimes and, and I can see people are, you know, what are we, and I, so as you know, some of you know, I say, what are you gonna discover? You know, that this person has two legs, that they, you know, uh, that their socks don't match? You know, fascinating. Uh, what we're trying to, it's a form of re-education. And what we're learning is, it's not to neglect the outer world. We're all very developed there. It's to, it's learning a skill. The skill is, is how to live, basically. Look, there are lots of skills. Uh, photography, if we went around a room, all of you have some skill 
perhaps you love to do it, and you're endlessly improving your ability to do it. This is another skill. What the Buddha is talking about is that through paying attention externally, internally as well, to what we see and hear and feel, uh, and learning from that, it's not just a, a vacant gaze, you know, just uh, looking around or going inside and uh, getting concentrated, which is necessary. That just refines the microscope or the telescope or the, gives the eyeglasses a, an appropriate uh, prescription. In other words, we have techniques that most of you know, uh, which are using the breath for, to develop awareness, which enable, um, forge a new quality of seeing. Because I would say the whole Buddhist enterprise succeeds or fails based on the, the quality of seeing and the learning, which we sometimes call insight, that can come out of clear seeing. The clearer the seeing, you can't practice insights. When there's clear seeing, the insights are they're just obvious. It would be like an improvement in our vision when we see the outer world as we've never seen it before. It turns out when you clarify the inner world, the outer world seems to become clearer as well. But here, the emphasis is where we need it. There may be exceptions among you, but most of us are undeveloped there. So this is a form of re-education. Can we look at fear, at loneliness, at disappointment, etc.? And for me, that was, I realized, I don't want to do that. Uh, that's why I got a PhD, you know, to arm myself so that I could get a good job and teach at a good university and uh, have enough money and have a nice summer off and, 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 and uh, someone will like me because of it maybe and we'll get married and have two children and a nice car and a little place to go in the summer. Um, that's all external and it's good. But what it didn't include was self-understanding. Socrates, know thyself. It's in, the Buddha is saying that over and over and over again in different words. So for me, um, I am grateful that someone turned me around. Because I don't know, I would just, I could have easily become cynical and skeptical. I doubt it because I wanted so much to find work that I love. Now it turns out this isn't a job, like I, I would see it as a job. And the first Zen master I had, had a question he would ask now and then. He would say, you'd come into interview and he'd be right on top of you, and he would say, what is, your, what is your true job? And I'd say, well, at the time, because I, I'm a social psychologist. And he said, no, no, no. <laughs> What's your true job? Duh, I don't know. And so the bell gets rung, you go out. Uh, <laughs> and so it, uh, it took me a long time, but, and I'm not saying I'm great at it, but relative to what I know, I have found my true job. This is it. Sorry, it's nothing. I, don't, I haven't expected or even cared about anything else. I thought I'd go back to the university. You know, I'll try all this stuff, go to Asia, live in monasteries, and then I'll go back and maybe they'll uh, take me back. After all, I will have something else to add to my resume, you know. <laughs> Korea, Japan, India, Thailand, you know. Uh, never went back. The thought never occurred to me after a while. Not even once. I don't know what happened. I don't know how I got here. I can give you a nice, intelligent-sounding, psychological, psychoanalytic pseudo of uh, how this worked out because of my family background and culture and this and that. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in it. Uh, all I know is I'm in the right place for me. I hope you are, too. 
But if you're not, sometimes we can't be. Like there was one gentleman who came here. Uh, uh oh. I'll cheat a little bit, yeah. Uh, who came here and in an interview, this is some years ago, he said, I very much want to be a medical doctor. He was from, I believe, Guatemala. And, you know, so I opened up and I said, Tell me about yourself. And he said, Well, and I said, Have you? He turns out he hadn't even finished high school. He had six children. He was in his uh, early 50s. And I said, You're not going to be a doctor. Have you you got to get comfortable with that because you're driving yourself crazy with a fantasy that can't be realized. You, do you care about your five children? He said, of course, I love them. How about your wife? I love her too. Saying like, you would have to finish high school, then go to college, then become an intern, resident, uh, on and on. He said like, uh, it, 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 it probably can't happen. Probably in quotes. And, oh, I guess you're right, so now what? Well, you can live out the rest of your life embittered, feeling like a failure, a disappointment, that I never got to do what I really wanted to do. Or you can turn it around and find some way of relating to what you have to do. One thing would be to let go of that unrealistic notion. And what is it about medicine that you like? You know, maybe it's helping people. Okay, help them this way. Find some way in what you are doing. Do you see what I'm getting at? So um, through much suffering, much, uh, I found this is what I... This is where I belong. And don't ask me how I got here. I hope I'm doing a reasonable job. But see, I feel I'll always have work because there's always going to be suffering. So I, don't, <laughs> so I don't advise you to practice too hard because if you start feeling happy, I might have to get a regular job. <laughs> and I don't know if I can do that anymore. Okay. Um, so... Essentially, self-knowing a quiet passion, it could be subtitled learning how to live. And you learn how to live by, remember it's self-knowing, it's in the active present. It's not, uh, you have a snap, oh, that's who I am. Oh, I'm a, and then some name about a label. Self-knowing is something that actively goes on. To get back to Dogen's statement, to know the self, uh, to understand Buddha Dharma is to understand the self. To understand the self is to forget about the self. That means in our meditation practice, when you watch mind coming and going, coming and going, uh, it doesn't have, what you're learning is how not to grab on, not to identify with, not to make something solid that isn't, to solidify and give a sense of enduring uh, uh, power to, but start seeing for what it is. Thoughts are just thoughts. Everything is just coming and going. As you start doing that, you start, the mind empties itself to get to know. You have to know some of that to improve how you act. Like if you have some terrible ways of treating people, you know, then ethical refinement, very important part of our path. So it's not saying you just sit there and everything takes care of itself. But as you get to know the mind, I'll put it this way, more for us modern people, um, you start to see what an incredibly deep, place we've entered into. Uh, when the mind, uh, for me, uh, the notion of silence simply meant a, meant a break from what's really important. If you had a few moments of silence in the mind. Uh, when you start to, and there's resistance to this, some of you know this, when you start realizing that the, the, the mind has, is unlimited, that we've been cultivating a, 
my PhD was learning about like cultivating a field, think of it in agricultural terms, some vast field, and I've taken a little corner of it, and I'm trying to get good crops and water them and compost and all, and that's great. But I think that that's the whole thing. And the reason I, uh, the university became unsatisfying, at least my field, is I realized all of the knowledge that I got uh, was about that, and there was, didn't seem to be any understanding that it was more than that. And so other ways of seeing this is that we humans, everyone here without exception, we have immense potential that goes untapped because we don't even know we have it. Whether you call it Buddha nature, original nature, true nature, emptiness, stillness, nirvana, nibbana, uh, satori, uh, they're, just, they're just labels. But when you start to explore, you see the real depth that a human being has. Not a human being, you. You have to see it in yourself. And more and more, there's tremendous, oh, wonderful stuff in each one of us. It's not in words, though. And, but you have to get there by taking care of, at least in this practice, the way we do it here, by taking care of who you are right now and by caring for what is happening right now to you, both sitting and off the cushion, little by little you start to, you start to taste it and you discover another dimension in life which you didn't know was there. And at first there'll be resistance and fighting it and w the, the struggle becomes between thinking, and that was the second one, uh, I did so much thinking that I didn't know what thinking was about. I was too busy doing it to understand well, what goes on when I'm engaged in thinking. Meditation gets you to look at the process of thinking because that little field is kept alive by thinking. I'm this, I'm that, I used to be, I am now, I will be. If I only get this degree, then I will be. I used to be a jerk. Now if I meditate someday, I will be wonderful and people will come on Wednesday night and they'll look at me and, you know, and, uh, and uh, get teary-eyed. Do uh, you see what I'm getting at? So a, the first kind of learning was a totally new way of approaching my suffering. And that is not a small thing. It's an ongoing thing until you learn... Uh, how valuable that is. Do we want to do it? Of course not. If we, if we wanted to do it, uh, we wouldn't need forms and techniques and places like this. We'd have done it a long time ago. For whatever reason, we have preferred an imaginary future and a past that's over with. The imaginary future could be wonderful or horrible. The past memories can be nightmarish or fantastic. We seem to prefer to hang out there than to be with the truth of the way it is in this moment, which includes sometimes the way it is, is suffering. We are lonely. We are bored. We, are, we have anger. We are afraid, etc. We are also joyful, loving, hateful. The Chinese put it, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, they're all there. The practice is with that. And that takes you beyond the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And from that place, you then come back refreshed, rejuvenated, uh, those are just words, they don't do it justice, and you express yourself the way in your, with your equipment. I have to express myself this way. If you're a carpenter, you would express it through your work with wood. If you were a mother, you'd express it through mothering. If you're a, uh, you tell me. It's not that you then become a zombie and just sit in emptiness and, oh, this is far out, man. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, I mean, there are people, I suppose, who do that, hermits, and, but hermits are interesting. I spent time with two of them. One was just a, no, it's, it's true. One was just a total misfit. It's good that he was a hermit because he was impossible and unbearable. The other one was an extraordinarily liberated person, didn't know how old he was. The people in the village at the bottom of the mountain didn't know how they said, oh, I don't know, somewhere between 90 and 100, we don't know. His cave was immaculate. Uh, better than my apartment. He didn't throw his underwear up in the air, uh, etc. So what CIMC is attempting to do, and it's quite a challenge, we've been trying for 21 years now, is to bring the practice to people who are, don't want to be monks and nuns with great respect to that calling. If you want to be, go, do it. But many of us, perhaps most of us, don't want to do that. Does that mean we're shut out and we can only worship monks and nuns and feed them and clothe them and uh, be told teachings and then be very grateful and uh, ceremonies to help us heal when we lose people or when we get married or when someone gets born? Weddings and bar mitzvahs, in other words. Uh, can we have more than that? And of course, that's what's going on. And the answer is yes. It's not that I made it up or people at IMS or other places. Uh, it's always existed. There have always been lay people like that. But it seems in this time and age, um, there's an opportunity for us to remain as lay people, living the life that we elect to live. And at the same time, it's not separated. At the same time, uh, grow inwardly. If you want to call it spiritually, grow spiritually. At any rate, who knows where I would have been if I hadn't come across all this stuff. But I know I got to it through immense suffering. Um, most people who come here start meditating because of that. If you're a really happy person, why come here? <laughs> I mean, you know, you could be dancing somewhere or in a nice movie. and You know, what, why come here? So, but anyway, here's one suffering person who is very, very grateful through particular teachers, of course, and the teachings. Uh, I don't know who the Buddha was, but we have available. I don't know the relationship of those teachings to the actual living Buddha, but however they got to me, they have changed my life, and I give thanks. I hope you have things to give thanks for, too. Okay. Um, don't tell. Don't tell any. Uh, <laughs> You're a squealer, though. You'll tell, won't you? <laughs> it's your job, you know. Okay. Um, those of you who are leaving, by the way, I'd like to change. We have an etiquette here. Like, if you're going to, if you want to leave now, it's not rude. Of course, leave. I like to start right in, not take a break. If you feel you can only stay for ten minutes, it will not be rude if you have to get up and you have to be home by a certain time or catch and talk over together. Yes, it doesn't have to be a question either. Go ahead. I did. Yes. My tradition's yoga based, and it's very much about spirituality, starting from that tradition. And I wonder. From what? When you say that tradition, what do you mean? Yoga is a very what? There's a lot of variation in yoga. Well, I would say yogic spirituality versus Buddhism. It's a very broad. Yes, yogic means there's so many. You know that. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out 
begins because there's a lot of people who can you explain to me? Yes. I was in I was in yoga for five years in Vedanta and I did lots of Hatha Yoga, still do it every day. Uh, frankly all those walls are artificial to me, but there is a difference. Um, I don't you know, it's it's a big question you're asking, it's an important one. Um, maybe this will help you. Some years ago, uh, do you know who Stephen Cope is? At, yes. Okay, Stephen invited myself and someone else, I've forgotten who, another Buddhist teacher, I think Ed Brown from San Francisco, Zen, and I was in, uh, uh, to come, we had what was called East Meets East uh, at Kripalu, and it was a retreat, I think it was a week. Okay, so what do they need me? It's a yoga center. And what they found was that they were, and they, the people who came were very famous Hatha Yoga teachers, Kripalo Yoga, Iyengar Yoga, etc. They're very uh, open to that. And they had all concluded what we call meditation, and I, this is what I experienced, and I know there's much more to it, is let's say there'd be a talk or you do yoga, and then uh, let's meditate the last five minutes of whether it was a talk or a Hatha Yoga, and then everyone would sit and have a holy look on their face, and then the bell would ring and you'd leave. And I always knew there's got to be more to that. Meditation has, is more than that. Um, so the reason they were asking us is the Buddhists have really uh, done a lot with uh, certain kinds of meditation. But I also, to go the other way, uh, I think you kind of said it, uh, the body has been very neglected in Buddhism in a certain way. There's this fear that you're going to get attached and then you'll suffer. And so I think if we took the strength of both, um, you, do you, do, you have postures that you do and breathing and so forth? Keep it up. It's wonderful. Uh, and do you, do you come to this center and you, do my, you know what mindfulness is and you do it? First of all, Patanjali got a lot of it from Buddha. He came later than the Buddha. They've all influenced each other. The Buddha didn't make up mindfulness of breathing. That was, existed thousands of years before the Buddha. Uh, what the Buddha did that's unusual or unique. Everyone has known that everything's impermanent. Everyone. In every culture. How could you miss that one? What the Buddha did is he said, turn, first of all, refine the mind so it's very steady and clear. And then take a look and see the law of impermanence at work in you. It's not enough to say, here, whole civilizations come and go. Uh... Uh, this, you know, the mountains were here and now they're gone. This was saying, take a look at you and you'll see the law of impermanence. No mood stays forever, no thought stays forever, no ideas as to who you are remains, the condition of the body in constant flux. So he turned a very familiar teaching, uh, equipping the person, and to look at that, um, and as a result, to help you let go of all that, and I, I do feel that uh, there's only one place to go when you go deep. How could there be many kinds of freedom, really? But I don't feel that all religions go to the same place. To me, that's like a, uh, a bromide to make everyone feel, uh, calm us all down. I don't think so. I don't really know, because this is what I know. But I would say the Buddhists have neglect, and the, the Buddhists neglect the body, and that's changing. Now, all kinds of people used to make fun of me, because I did all this yoga and had a good diet, my, my friends, uh, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, all, all these people, they're now doing yoga. Because as you get older, you start finding the, the body starting to get decrepit and fall apart. Uh, and uh, 
people who are who've been very much into the bodily expression remember Patanjali's yoga has a lot that is quite similar to this but it wasn't being done in the United States uh, that part was thrown away and it was all just the body you know for the body to have uh, I don't know, to live forever, to be beautiful, to have nice abs, uh, whatever, uh, leotard yoga. I'm not saying you're doing that. Okay, so um, my anchor is in the original teachings of the Buddha. I'm not eclectic, but uh, I didn't throw away what I learned in my yoga days from a, a wonderful Swami, Swami Sariswati. No time to go into that. And uh, I've given it a Buddhist twist, though. I don't use uh, the... Um, chakras and the nadis, yogic physiology. What I use is mindfulness. It's sort of, when I do an asana, it's no different than walking meditation. Am I awake as I'm doing it fully? Do you see what I'm getting at? So uh, for me, it's not a problem, but I don't know if that's helpful for you. I'm not saying one is superior to the other because I think I've met one, people who've gone very deeply in both. Yeah. This is just what I, just what I know. Please. Um, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, so we're familiar with the uh, American uh, seasonal calendar. I, I'm not familiar with the Buddhist. Is, is there a Neither am I. Are there <laughs> yes. But let me, here I have to, uh, and about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, it was a Wednesday night, much more crowded. Before Thanksgiving, this is not a big crowd because people are you know, flying to be with their families and so forth. This was packed. It wasn't Thanksgiving. And at the end of it, the talk was over, and someone raises their hand just about this time, and they ask me, uh, are you a Buddhist? Which is kind of a strange question, you would think. And I, people tell me, because I don't remember. I got silent for more than five minutes, and I said, no. And half the group got depressed, <laughs> because they, they want a new thing to identify with and to belong to. And the other group said, thank God, not another religion. You know, we just want to do this. This is great stuff, but don't make me go through what I, you know, ex-Catholics, ex-Jews, ex-ex, ex-something. But I would put it this way now, because for me, Buddhism is not an affiliation. It's a guide to living. So I have, uh, now, if that makes me, if you want to call me a Buddhist, that's fine with me. I don't care about the label. I don't know the holidays. I don't know what all the different gestures mean, what the ceremonies are. Not only that, please don't take this as disrespectful. I could care less. I just don't care about that. Now, I don't want to voice that. Some people do, and it can, and it can be a wonderful religion for people. I've seen it all over the world. I'm not against that. I tried to be that way. It just doesn't take. I'm just hopeless in that way. I, can't, I don't like ceremonies. I don't like... Uh, ritual. I did years of it, bowing 101 full, 101 times, full prostrations every morning for five years, chanting in Chinese and Korean 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes every evening for five years. Then into the Japanese version of it, uh, eating a certain way, uh, chanting in Japanese, uh, and then I quit. Uh, so what this is is a low-budget film here. But I'm not. A, I'm sorry. I can't answer it. I really don't. Uh, there are holidays, but I don't know them. Yeah. Please. <laughs> 
watch how you live. Um, pay attention. Certain, pay attention. Certain emotions may come up that are not um, great emotions. Say you start getting angry for something that's um, not useful. How, what do you mean by watch it? Do you, I mean, step aside and just think? Take time to yourself for five minutes to say, okay, I feel myself getting angry. Let's analyze it. Let's look at it. No. Is that what you do? Or no. That's a good, you're new to this, right? You're pretty new? Uh, yeah. Okay. Six That's new. You're a newborn babe. Okay. Yeah. Um, watch simply means awareness. So we have to start from the beginning. This is for anything that you will ask me whether it's uh, anger. Uh, okay, he, he, uh, I'll make it very concrete. I'll do my best to do that. Let's say uh, someone, you're with someone and they say something and you get very angry. Every human being knows what that's like. Okay. So typically what happens is we drown in it. We're just angry. We lash out, scream in the extreme, kill the person and wind up in San Quentin. Does that still exist? I don't know. Okay. That's one extreme. The other is denial, you know, where you squash it and you try to be a good person. And that's, you know, and you don't fully let the anger out. Or maybe, of course, you restrain yourself because if you don't, you could kill someone. And that's, anyone, no one wants that to happen. Buddhist, no, no one wants that. But here's the difference. Here's what awareness means. Um, now, you can't really do what I'm saying until the mind has a certain level of steadiness and clarity. Because let's say an untrained mind uh, would find it, there may be exceptions, but I haven't run into them. An untrained mind would have a very difficult time be, being steady, aware, and non-judgmental of the energy called anger. It's not thinking. It's not thinking anger. It's, see, throw the word anger out. It's energy, right? You can feel it in the body. You know, the pulse changes, the heart changes, your posture changes, uh, the, the, everything changes. They, you'd be aware of that. Now, it's not detachment. What it is is an opening up to and feeling that without either drowning in it nor denying it, pushing it away, fighting with it. Uh, now, that sounds like a tall order. And the same for loneliness, the same for any kind of fear, the same for any... But it's not pulling back, no. At, to begin with, probably most of us do that. and then, But little by little, as you keep hearing this enough, you realize... It's not about detachment, it's more about intimacy. Learning how, now, to do that, there has to be a certain degree of stability. Now, when you do that, let's say, let's act it out now. You say something that gets me furious. You haven't, of course. Okay. Uh, with practice, more and more, uh, practice doesn't mean just stay on the cushion or come to CIMC or do retreats. That's helpful, can be very helpful but it's also meant to be done all in daily life. So let's say this is happening somewhere else, not here, Harvard Square. But with practice, I can learn how to stay attentive to you but not lose touch with myself. To begin with, I would lose touch. You know, I'd, be, I'd either get furious or I'd, you know, if I have certain kinds of upbringing, you know, like, do you really feel that way? Uh, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. Okay, that would be you. Okay. But here, you would see the shoulders going like this. They would then fall down. You would then feel the ache of the anger, maybe the disappointment. Uh, it's not that certain kinds of thoughts are forbidden, but it isn't so much an analysis of it as 
when awareness, think of awareness as energy, okay? Seeing, seeing energy, mindfulness. So far, so good? And think of anger as energy, too. That's because that's what I'm talking about. Not the word anger, okay? Seeing energy touches the energy of anger, which is like inflamed, okay? There's something in mindfulness energy that has a good effect on whatever it touches. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Uh, it, uh, okay, if not, you will, if you keep doing this. And somehow the anger loses its power a little bit this time, and a little bit the next time. Um, or it may lead to talking it out with the person and telling them how you're feeling. But it's not, design, it's not that you act out. So, but learning can be how you brush your teeth, how you do the dishes. Uh, nothing is trivial. How you, do you listen when someone else is speaking? Most of us don't listen very well. Because when, the, when someone else is speaking, our mind is busy with wh- whatever it's busy with, or it's rehears- it's, it can't wait to say what it wants to say, you know, which is also very interesting and fascinating in that you're going to just be enthralled with. And we kind of listen. And in order to learn the art of listening, which is necessary for us humans with each other, you, have to, you, you, start, you learn how you don't listen, really. Everyone starts. The art of listening is a very, very profound art and a very refined one. It takes a lot of work. But it's, it's joy. So the point is, you approach life, whatever your life is, rather than with the attitude of intention of judging it all the time, of, of understanding. Uh, and, and, you know, and so I don't want to tell you what you would learn, because you'd learn what you learn. But I can't do too much more than this, but the, at least to get you started. Now, that means, do you do breath awareness meditation? Okay, when you're doing, every time you're aware of an in-breath and an out-breath, you're training the mind to be steadier and clearer. Have you done metta practice here, loving-kindness? Okay, we have a form of meditation called loving-kindness. If someone comes here and they're overwhelmingly negative, they get angry at everything, they couldn't possibly do what I'm saying. It is just too far away. We have a meditation where we cultivate the opposite of... Okay. That's helpful too. It's not exactly uh, going to ever uproot it. Wisdom is kind of seeing it, and insight is seeing into. The reason we see into our own nature, and as we get to know it for what it is, not for what we think it is, or what the culture wants us to think it is, uh, the mind starts emptying itself, and you tap something called emptiness, or silence. Once that happens, everything changes, but I can't tell you about. You have to taste. Have you had even a few moments of silence now and then, or peace? Oh, you mean in daily life? No, let's say it's just limited to sitting. Yeah. Okay, that's going to grow. And more and more you'll see that that's the place to live in and to act from, whether it's verbal or physical, whatever it is. And and sometimes, you know, you find yourself Somebody was late visiting me today, and I just assumed that they were being inconsiderate and this and that. It turns out they were in traffic. So okay. I, you know, you misjudge the whole situation. Exactly. Get yourself angry over nothing. Okay, one, Sometimes I wish, you know, if you could see that at the beginning, you would have saved some misery. Yeah, you start unlearning. See, uh, l- l- this is the last thing that I think, you know, there's a limit to what we can do. It'll, it's better when it grows out of your actual meditation practice and you learn for yourself and question. Um, 
most of how we behave in daily life before we do anything about it is conditioned. You have your background, your parents, your school system, you're this, you're that, so do I. And what we think is spontaneous or the real me, it's uh, mechanical. Uh, so that someone set, looks at you a certain way and you, you can't help it. It's, uh, so your way is different that someone else doesn't take it the same way. Everyone is taking the same reality very differently based on their conditioning. This form of meditation is a form of deconditioning. To begin with, you may need to replace negative conditioning with positive, but that's just on the way. The real point is to go beyond conditioning. The silence I'm talking about is unconditioned. No culture has touched it. It has nothing to do with your history. We're all the same there. Your personality is not there. But then when you tap it, you must express it through your equipment. You do it through you. You don't lose that. And I do it through me. I think, yeah. Are the the words a little bit clear? Mm -hmm. Okay. Please. Sure. It can be, but let, let's back up because, see, if your mind is, first of all, a very basic reflection that I would encourage you to do if you've not done it already, there is no such thing as the future. We're talking about the psychological time. Okay? It's the, when, when you're envisioning that I might get bored or all those things that you have, you're doing it in the present moment. It's just that it's like a virtual reality, like with computers. It's as if you're in some t- terrible future or someone else. Uh, if I meditate and do all this stuff, oh, wow, I can just... And they imagine a future, and it feels like you're there, but you're not there. You're always here. There's no place else. The past is gone. And yet, so we can be in the past as it's if it's as, and we relive, relive our suffering over and over, because yet you can heal that suffering, but the only way to heal it is now. So there's only now. If you get to see that, it's very liberating. So it's not, uh, let's say, you're still spending a lot of time in the future if you're worrying about the future. Uh, And even the fear of the present, unless there's something fearful happening to you, very often the fear, we're safe. You know, the mind makes up some scenario, but it also makes up extraordinary scenarios. The practice is to stay with the facts. The fact for you in a given moment might be that you have fear about something that hasn't happened yet. Your mind is caught up in what might happen. I might be bored. Do you see what I'm getting at? So the practice can only take place in the present moment because life only happens in the present moment. But it seems as if we're in some past or we're in some future. Now, there's skillful uses of envisioning the future, and there's skillful uses of, the, of, the, of memory. We're not saying 
throw it all out. It's just that we've been living in anything but to be intimate with the facts of how it is now. And that's where, we, that's where the liberation comes from, by being fully with what's now. The suffering, the joy, whatever it is, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. So you just told me your particular weather conditions. But we all have our own. You know, it depends on what your content is. But, that we're, but the practice is always the same. Be mindful of it. Watch its arising and passing away right here and now. Please. No, I, I didn't feel that. I wish I had. I felt that this was, uh, in other words, what I felt was, this is what learning is. It, it's books, okay? And it's only when that crashed, and there was more I left out, you know, uh, that I, uh, and I met somebody who said, yes, book learning is wonderful, but there's another kind of learning uh, which people don't seem to value because no one's, very, people, very few are doing it, and that's learning about yourself. So at that point, it's not that I've rejected it. I still study and read and get joy from it. But uh, I spent a year in Korea promising my teacher to not read anything for one year. I needed an extreme measure. I hope you don't need it. I, needed, I was like a drug addict. I needed strong medicine to wean me from it. A New York Jewish intellectual, I don't know if that means anything to you. Uh, it's a certain kind of uh, malfunction. You often get rewarded for it. You can get well paid for it sometimes. But when it becomes at the expense, it's not the in and of itself, at the expense of the quality of your life, which it can, then that's a misuse of it. So, but keep going. Do you see what I'm getting at? Very important. Yes, b like both are needed. And so they are both needed. Oh, sure. Well, in, in a sense, uh, let's say you go into, this is a trivial example. You go into a restaurant, you've never been in the restaurant, and they say, well, what do you want? And you say, well, what do you got? You know, and you say, well, I, I don't know. I don't, you know. And that, or if they have a menu, they say, well, here's a menu. Oh, the menu, you don't start chewing on the menu. Uh, I would say most spiritual teachings and people call teachers, what we're doing is pointing. It's like Boston. If you've never been to Boston, it's great. There's a sign. Boston this way, not that way, not up there. Not. After a while, you don't need that sign anymore. You just know how to get... Okay, so we ha already have a lot of thinking and conclusions about how reality is and how life is and how to live and so forth. This is, in a sense, another kind of re-education, hopefully, these kinds of ideas, concepts, and thoughts are a little more helpful in terms of how to live. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.